Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today, we will look into urban planning and cities, which have been revolutionized by development in computation, big data, and artificial intelligence. Professor Michael Batty from the University College London suggests that to understand cities, we must view them not simply as places in space, but as systems of networks and flows. Professor Betty presents the foundation of a new science of cities, introducing tools that can be applied to understanding different aspects of city structures by examining the size of cities, their internal order, the transport routes that define them, and the location that fix these networks. He was invited by the Hong Kong Polytechnic University to give a talk entitled "Pair Distinguished Lecture: Developing a Science of Cities." Uh, you can see that,、uh, in some senses, we've got cities of different forms, different shapes on all scales, and that's important because scaling, the idea of scale, and the idea of repetition across scales, the idea of similarity across scales, is pretty central to、uh, the way we're talking about the growth of cities in this particular context. Look at the shape and the size of those cities at different scales, then we find that there tend to be One large city, and then、um, uh, two or three、uh, cities at the next level, and then five or six cities at the next level, and so on. So you see a regular progression with more and more of the bits of cities being smaller and smaller. And of course, none of that's very surprising because to be a big city, you've got to be a small city first, in that sense.、Uh, so there's a growth process involved in that. Let me scale up again, scale up to to Britain itself, and you can see that. And then on the on the right there, we have night lights,、uh, which are showing、um, uh, population uh, distribution to some extent in、uh, in Western Europe. Uh, and um, I'm not going to show any. I don't have a picture of that, but、uh, we could scale up even further. And we can look at the world distribution of population、uh, in this particular context using night lights, in a sense. So let's look at a, a couple of places which are more familiar, basically. So this on the left is、uh, the Greater Bay Area, and on the right we've got Shanghai. This is taken from the human, uh, uh, the global uh, uh, settlement data, which、uh, the JRC in Europe and CSUN、um, uh, in uh, uh, Columbia University actually put together. Um, so it's a, a very detailed database of、uh, population densities. Let me actually、um, impress this idea of the complexity of things by actually zooming in on the on the Greater Bay Area.、Um, and this is a remarkable picture in many senses because it shows the complexity of of how these cities are fusing together. It shows it it contains all of the kind of features that relate to complexity theory in this context. The idea of self similarity. Uh, the idea that the little bits have a similar structure to the big bits in that sense, that there is a hierarchy in a sense, and it always I always find it remarkable to be sitting here in Hong Kong,、uh, which is an incredibly sort of diverse and uh,、um, uh, diverse and complex place,、uh, and it's only one bit of this overall complexity.、Um, it's interesting to ask people how many、uh, how many people live in this region, basically. And I've even on this trip here, I've、uh, I've 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 heard estimates from 40 million、uh, all the way to about 80 million. Basically, I think the true、uh, estimate, which if you if you do you use a pencil and just draw around those and、uh, and count count the the most dense parts, basically, 
then uh, which are connected in a sense, then you'd probably be talking about 60 million or something of that sort. Uh, but again, this is showing you the kind of complexity of things. Now, of course, in some senses, this science of cities that I'm talking about is really based on uh, explaining uh, and, uh, well, certainly observing uh, and understanding and explaining all of these bits and how they really relate together. Here's London, by the way, basically, and I think this is about the same scale. It's always a bit tricky when you go to the web um, and uh, pull these off and then uh, scale them, basically. This is about the same scale. And you can see that in many senses, um, the complexity of this picture is really quite different from the complexity of the Greater Bay Area in some senses. Uh, I won't elaborate those differences. You can see them for yourselves. But London is a little bit more compact. It's simpler in some sense, largely, I think, because you haven't got sort of big metropolitan areas such as Hong Kong, Shenzhen and uh, Guangzhou, basically, in a sense, uh, which make it much more complex in a sense and perhaps even uh, even more than, more than that. And again, this is a characteristic, I think, this picture of what I showed you earlier on uh, in terms of the population density of, uh, of London itself, basically. Now, you can see in this hierarchy and you can see scale. It's an excellent example. These are excellent examples of scaling. Now, of course, scaling, in a sense, uh, we've been looking at uh, the location of things. But if we look at network structures, then we see the same kind of scaling taking place. One of the kind of key ideas in all of this is the notion that cities um, uh, and complex systems barely grow and evolve to fill the space that they exist within. They reach out into the into the space, and the networks represent the way energy is sort of uh, uh, produced and disseminated in terms of these systems, uh, illustrating the idea that networks are there to actually service to some extent to move energy around within the system in this particular context. Okay, here's some excellent examples, very simple ones in terms of biological systems that are fractal, uh, are self-similar, a little bit like our cities, but this is clearer. In a sense, you can see the energy being distributed in this leaf in that context. Uh, in a way, you can see uh, indeed um, uh, how, for example, the leaf is reaching out into the air to actually capture uh, energy in that sense. Um, and uh, here, for example, are some pictures of uh, of different kinds of networks, basically, rather than locations in 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 which do match very closely uh, the previous examples. On the immediate left, there we've got a picture of uh, of retailing, shopping, basically in London, and you can see the you can see Hyde Park right in the middle there on the left hand side, uh, the open park, uh, and the big city centre, the enormous city centre that uh, exists in London, basically. And then you can also see the retailing reaching out into the suburbs in this sense. All of these networks uh, show how uh, the city is growing by reaching out in a sense. Uh, and it's arguable that, the, uh, that, that this is perhaps the best model of how a city should develop in terms of in, in that sense. There are some very obvious things of minimizing the amount of energy, basically, uh, in terms of uh, parsimonious networks like this. Uh, and uh, all I should mention on this one, they're, they're all pictures of London. The one in the middle is uh, the town of Wolverhampton in the West Midlands of uh, Britain. And uh, the, one of the interesting examples is that you have a naturally growing network, basically, and then uh, a top-down uh, imposition of a ring road. It's one of the few towns in Britain that has a perfect ring road, 
That's about one kilometer square, that ring road, to give you an idea of scale. So these are all at different scales. But the different scales, in fact, uh, reveal, of course, that we have self-similarity between scales. The top uh, right-hand corner are night lights, um, a night lights picture in, in, in Tokyo, basically, in a sense. That's a particularly good one where you can see the, uh, the density and you can also look at the uh, way the, the city is spreading out into its suburbs. Now, I could talk for hours about all these sorts of patterns, but let me just say that that all of this is related to what is referred to as fractal geometry. Um, first developed probably 50 years or more ago, of course, all of these ideas go back perhaps indefinitely into uh, 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 to before the Industrial Revolution, perhaps to the Greeks even in a sense. But nevertheless, Benoit Mandelbrot, um, uh, has developed many of these ideas and uh, they're best seen in his wonderful book, The Fractal Geometry of Nature, uh, which was was actually produced first in France in 77 and then translated uh, uh, into English in 1982. Uh, and what he basically said was that um, all of these objects that we've been looking at, basically, in a sense, um, are more complex than you think of. They're, they're fractals, basically. Uh, and the key issue in terms of fractal objects is that their scale, um, uh, or rather their form, I should say, uh, is is that uh, uh, they are fractional dimensions. And I'll come on to that in a moment, but uh, some quite profound issues that really come out of this with respect to the way we think about geometry. Okay, very quickly in terms of what fractals are, uh, and I'll show you some more pictures in a moment uh, of this, uh, then essentially fractals um, exist between space in some sense. Uh, they're self-similar. Self-similar is a, a fractal object is, uh, uh, and uh, essentially the fractal fills space. And we've seen examples of that in the way the cities fill space, the way leaves fill space and so on. But if we actually think of um, uh, the geometry of Euclid that we learn at school, basically, they think of zero dimension as a point, uh, one dimension as a line, two dimensions as a plane, 3D as a volume, and so on, uh, into the uh, higher order dimensions in that sense. What fractals are, they're objects that exist between dimensions in this sense. Ironically, if you take the fractal view, uh, most of Euclidean geometry is extreme, and fractal is the norm in this particular context. Now, an excellent example of a fractal that, that, that uh, fills space uh, is a piece of paper. We'd all probably agree that the, the piece of paper that you can see with the hand on in that context is uh, you know, two-dimensional in some sense. Turn it into something more than two dimensions, but not quite three. In other words, we've taken a two-dimensional thing, and it's still two-dimensional. Um, it's still two-dimensional, but it's more than two dimensions. To describe it, you'd really have to think in terms of three dimensions, but it's not three dimensions in the Euclidean sense in that way. So this is an excellent example with a, a, a fractal dimension of something between two and three. Uh, a good example of um, a, a fractal dimension between one and two is if we put the, the pen on the, on the paper here uh, and we then um, uh, began to draw a continuous line, we could actually draw a continuous line and fill in this picture with the continuous line uh, fill it all in. It would look two-dimensional, but it would still be a line, basically, which is one-dimensional. And that really is uh, the idea of fractal geometry in some sense. Now, some excellent examples of fractals are tree structures, for example. We've seen a couple of these before. These are all, apart from the one in the uh, the, the, uh, the, the maple leaf, basically, in the middle there, 
Uh, these are all kind of computer graphics. And a lot of early computer graphics was uh, exploiting the ideas of fractals in the 1980s and 1990s, basically. Uh, a good deal of uh, uh, computer graphics in the movie industry, in fact, uh, basically simulated landscapes using um, using fractal ideas, etc. And back then to um, city morphologies, basically, we can then begin to look at the hierarchies, we can begin to look at the dimension of these things, uh, because the dimensions of them that, that show you that all the space is not filled in these two dimensions, uh, but um, uh, enough of space is, is filled to show that the, uh, the dimension between uh, one and two, basically, in a sense, or between two and three, basically, certainly between one and two in terms of these pictures, uh, is these cities, uh, these city shapes tend to be something in the order of about a fractional the dimension of 1.7. Now, I'm not going to tell you in any sense how you can actually measure these fractal dimensions. That's, a, a, to some extent, a detail uh, in terms of what I'm talking about today. Um, but nevertheless, we can actually measure these things, and there is indeed uh, 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 several branches of uh, uh, fractal geometry where uh, there are different ways of thinking about these dimensions, etc., and it gets into sort of fairly hairy mathematics, basically. One of the features, too, in all of this, which is important in terms of scale, is that when we look at the objects uh, in, in these particular pictures, if we look at, for example, Britain, you can see the big towns and you can see the small towns. If we were to ar arrange the objects in terms of size, we'd find a small number of big objects and a very large number of little objects. And as I said before, that's largely because to be a big town, you've got to be a little town first, basically, in that sense. Uh, and so you have growth and evolution in that particular context. But the relationship between the objects um, is actually very regular. And, and much of fractal geometry is, is, is looking at this degree of regularity. Uh, and also, uh, this particular pic, this, this picture that, uh, that I'm about to move on from, uh, basically gives you an idea about how we might even build, uh, models of how these morphologies take place in a sense. So here, for example, is, uh, showing you the, uh, how we can zoom in and we can see the fractal structure emerging itself, uh, in this particular way. Uh, and what we have here is um, uh, here is uh, uh, the growth, if you like, of a fractal cluster planted into some kind of landscape. Now, the landscape, in fact, uh, on the on the on the top right and the um, uh, the little bit on the lower left, basically, um, this will please please Professor Shen because this actually is Cardiff, uh, and that's the um, the River Avon, basically. Uh, and uh, what we've done in this particular context is to plant. Uh, a fractal and grow the fractal basically and there's a good deal of physics which is literally related to physical objects which are grown in this particular manner but here we're growing the town in this particular manner and we're tuning it we can we can parameterize You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor Betty from the University College London telling us a new science of city called from complexity theory. Next, he will tell us a bit more about the urban future. Okay, there's lots of basic uh, conundrums and paradoxes. One of the kind of features about uh, a fractal is that um, 
certain basic properties such as fixed length, etc., uh, disappear. That, in other words, the length of a fractal can often be intricate. I'm going to demonstrate that in a moment. Uh, Mandelbrot himself, the inventor of fractals, basically wrote a, a famous paper in science in 1967 called How Long is the Coastline of Britain? Of course, the answer is that the coastline of Britain is, is infinite because there are more and more detail you pick up as you begin to uh, change your measuring scale, basically, uh, and move down onto the coastline itself. In fact, the coastline is unclear, it's uncertain, it's, it's difficult to define. So the answer, of course, is that um, uh, it's not a meaningful question in this particular context, how long is the coastline of Britain? Let me actually show you um, uh, an example of this, basically. So this is constructed. I know this is going to make you dizzy a bit, it's making me dizzy at the moment, uh, but you can actually see how we're zooming in and you have the same degree of irregularity. This is a classic example of a fractal. So if we think of our cities in these terms, uh, then there are lots of these ideas that we might really uh, develop, um, which can, can show us, you know, uh, how complex the system is in some senses. How do we construct one of these fractals, basically? Now, here's, a, here's an example very quickly about how it demonstrates the idea that the coastline is infinite, in a sense, the length. We start off with a little triangle in the in the left-hand box, and we then scale the triangle, uh, uh, take a third of it, uh, a third of the uh, of A, basically, and we stick the little bit, the little triangle, on the edge, basically. So you can see if we move from the uh, from the triangle to the uh, the Star of David uh, in that context, uh, then we stuck a little bit on each of that, and you can see immediately that the the length of the of the line, the perimeter, basically, uh, is is greater. Basically, in that sense, it's gone up. If we keep on doing that, then the perimeter gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There's no ending. We go beneath the scale of the of, of resolution of the screen or the scale of resolution of, uh, well, however we're actually uh, drawing that, basically. But ultimately, this is a demonstration that the perimeter, uh, or the length of the coastline, if you like, in a sense, is, is effectively infinite, or not defined, probably, but infinite in that sense. Of course, the area is defined, basically. The area is conserved in that sense. So that's a real paradox, to some extent, a very simple paradox. And you can see on the um, on, on on the right we show the construction uh, on the right of that picture, and then um, the third example, uh, the third uh, illustration on the on the right is um, is the hierarchy in that sense. Uh, so all of these things are really key to the idea of the structure and the system and so on. Christopher Alexander, I mentioned, uh, wrote a paper called "A City Is Not a Tree." What he effectively said is that that complex systems. Uh, almost the fractal idea is too simple in some sense. That uh, uh, and here he shows a picture of Chandigarh, which is a new town in um, uh, in India. Is it India or Pakistan? It's, it's in, probably on the border, basically. Uh, Chandigarh, which was planned by uh, Le Corbusier, I think, a very simple kind of structure, basically. It says, but actually, he he then goes on to uh, show a picture of the sort of relationship between. Uh, different units, basically, in Manhattan, basically. So you can see the subsystems defining Chandigarh are much simpler than those in Manhattan. Of course, what Jane Jacobs was talking about in her book uh, was that the world should be like Manhattan. It should not be like Chandigarh. Chandigarh is too simple uh, in that sense. To, uh, and, of course, ultimately, um, 
uh, that uh, people in cities will uh, vote with their feet, basically, in a sense, and uh, Chandigarh ultimately will probably turn out to be more like Manhattan, uh, in the sense that the Manhattan example is much more diverse than the Chandigarh, etc. Now, here are some pictures of uh, Renaissance towns in Italy, which, again, have, uh, have introduced the fractal idea to some extent. Uh, if you're trying to defend a town like this, then you pack your archers or your army, basically, the archers uh, around the walls, basically. And what you see in this particular context is that these fortified towns, basically, these ideal fortified towns, of which there are a number in uh, in Italy and uh, in Europe for the Renaissance days, uh, indicate how they've added to the wall by these crenellations. So a very simple example of how fractal geometry sort of works in practice. Okay, size and scaling. We've talked a lot about scaling, basically. There are many laws about scaling. And the classic signature of scaling is the so-called power law. It's the only algebraic function that has the same form when its scale is actually changed, basically, in this particular context. Let me list a number of these things. If, for example, we look at a city and we look at the population in a city, um, the population in a city, which we might call P, generates P squared interactions. So if you're living in a village of 10 people, then there's potentially there's 10 squared possible interactions. Okay, the, 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 the interactions two ways, we could sort of forget about them basically, but let, let's assume that um, uh, we do interact with ourselves and we interact with our neighbors and our neighbors interact with us. Then you get uh, 10, 10 squared for a village of 10 would give you 100 interactions. Double it to 20 and you get 400 interactions. Double it again to 40 and you get um, uh, uh, 1,600 interactions, basically 160 interactions, I should say. Um, so anyways, as P goes up, as the size of the city goes up, the, 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 sheer, the, the sheer increase in interactions goes up geometrically in this sense. And that's particularly important because one of the things that we're saying is that cities get bigger, um, they get richer, they get more diverse, there are more opportunities. This is really what Jane Jacobs was saying back in her book, uh, that really cities should, uh, should, 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 should actually give the opportunities for extensive interaction in this particular context. And bigger cities in this sense give you more than proportionate interactions, and a whole range of theories that have emerged about uh, innovation in cities related to the size of the city and so on. Um, uh, this is true of the, uh, of the in terms of big cities, basically. The bigger the city, the more likely you are to have uh, inventions and patents and things of that in this context. Now, this is what the biologists call allometry. It's what the economists call economies of scale or agglomeration economies. It means that as things get bigger uh, in this particular context, they get more than proportionately richer in some sense. And this has been demonstrated um, a number of times for different cities in terms of their scale and their wealth in this particular context. Here's a picture taken from um, Lewis Betancourt and Jeff West's Santa Fe uh, Cities Group, basically published in PNAS in 2007. Uh, you can see that here we've got... Um, this is classic allometry. Here we've got uh, uh, the, a scale of, um, of of a human being from a baby, basically, uh, from six months old through to uh, 25, and you can actually see the change in shape. And the argument would be that small cities have got different shapes from big cities in that sense. They evolve in terms of shape. 
There are lots of things that illustrate this, that you've got to probably have to reach about 4 million people before you can get a proper subway system. In that sense, you don't get subway systems of town of um, uh, 500,000, for example. They're simply not uh, diverse enough with enough interactions to be able to, to take place. Now, of course, you, if we if we actually uh, regress the uh, the wages in these towns of different sizes on the population uh, and other things such as uh, patents and so on, then we get a relationship. And the point is, in this context, is that the relationship is a little bit more than a little bit more than linear, basically, in that sense. The the shape or the slope rather of that line that you can see in there where we've plotted wages against population is a little bit more than one, which is a bit like saying that uh, that as we increase the uh, increase the population, then the wages increase slightly more than proportionately. Uh, and th this is an important issue. In other words, the wages in places like uh, like Hong Kong, for example, uh, I'll let, I'll let me let me use a British example. It's probably uh, the wages in a place like Manchester, for example, would be um, a little bit less uh, than the wages in a place like London, basically, because London is, you know, two or three times as big. I mean, that's the theory of, of allometry in this context. So there are some quite important uh, implications in this set. Um, I don't have any uh, examples of how cities change in shape. Darcy Wentworth Thompson, in his um, book on growth and form, has some wonderful pictures of how fishes change in shape due to the as they increase in size. Basically, in that sense, it'd be nice to think that we had cities, we had pictures of cities in this sense. But what we do have um, is relationships such as that. So I've taken the, the primary urban areas in the UK here. There's 63 of them, and you can see the names of places: London and Birmingham here, but uh, the 63 biggest cities. And I plotted wages against population, um, and the slope uh, is only very slightly sort of um, uh, more than one, basically. But for patents, for example, is it patents or business services, for example, then the slope is a, a good deal more greater than one in this particular context. We're really saying that, that a lot of um, uh, higher tech and uh, things of that sort are more likely to be increasing more than proportionately in uh, big cities than in, uh, in small cities in that sense. Now, lots of scaling laws exist. For example, the uh, the, the the law that says that um, the number of potential connections goes up as the square of population in a sense, or something less than the the, the square, but nevertheless greater than one. This is referred to um, uh, in as Metcalfe's law. It's the network equivalent of Moore's law, basically in Gilder's law. These are uh, ideas of growth, basically, in a sense, but Metcalfe's law really relates to networks, basically, in that sense. Um, there are lots of things that relate from this average time of travel increases uh, as networks increase, that uh, as the density in central areas tends to increase in, 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 uh, in, as they grow, basically. All of those things are, are contained in, in, in Metcalfe's law. West law is really related to this notion about average real income and wealth increases. This is a pure allometry, basically. It's also Marshall's law after Marshall, who uh, the uh, 19th century economist, basically, who uh, introduced economies of scale, basically, in that sense. So we've got a couple of law, and we've got Metcalfe's law, and we've got West law in this particular context. Uh, other laws, for example, as cities get bigger, they tend to get greener. That's Brandt's law after Stuart Brandt, who is, wrote the whole Earth catalogue. 
cities get bigger, there are less of them. This is the this is the rank size rule. So there are lots of laws of this kind. There's another law that really relates to density in cities. Uh, as uh, you go more or less from the centre of the city to the edge, to the periphery in sense, densities tend to fall off, and they fall off as a power law, basically. Uh, and this we, we can refer to as provisionally, anyway, uh, as Alonzo's law, after William Alonzo, basically. But it's also... Uh, you know, articulated by people like Colin Clark and Alan Wilson and people of that sort, basically. So lots of laws of scaling. Now, these are not hard laws that you might expect the science to be full of hard laws, basically, in that sense. So this is not that sort of science. But in fact, even that sort of science, it's no longer that clear that uh, there are hard laws, basically, in some sense. Uh, in as soon as one introduces the human being or the stakeholder into the equation, basically, uh, then many of these laws really become observed regularities, could at any time, at any point in time, be, be turned on their heads. That was Professor Michael Batty from the University College London. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters. <laughs> <laughs>